Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the June edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. This month we have Jackie Hill with us, discussing the association between body mass index and incisional complications, and Maria Fugazola talking about surgical repair of osteochondral defects. Jackie Hill is an equine surgeon at Littleton Equine Medical Centre, Colorado, and this work was carried out as part of her residency training at Cornell University. The paper we're discussing is titled Higher Body Mass Index May Increase the Risk for the Development of Incisional Complications in Horses Following Emergency Ventral Midline Celiotomy. Jackie, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast today. Thank you for having me. Can I start by asking um, about adipose tissue? So it's known to produce pro-inflammatory mediators, which can lead to a chronic mild inflammatory state. And this has been linked to several diseases in the equine population. So how has obesity been linked to incisional site infection? Well, the relationship between obesity and incisional site infections in horses has actually not been studied previously. There's a plethora of evidence in the human literature that demonstrates that obesity in humans is associated with increased postoperative morbidity and mortality, including an increased risk of incisional complications. But thus far, there's really only one other equine study that looked at the role of obesity that it may play on postoperative mortality after colic surgery. But really, there's no other study looking at the effects of obesity on postoperative complications. And that's part of what prompted us to perform this study. And what other risk factors have previously been identified to increase the risk of an incisional infection? Well, there have been a number of studies over the years, so I won't even try to name all of them. Um, But... For example, some of the intraoperative factors that have been associated with an increased risk of developing an incisional infection would be having peritoneal contamination during the surgery, uh, horses that have a diagnosis of a large colon obstruction, performing an enterotomy during the surgery, increased surgical time, and a longer length of abdominal incision. And likewise, there have been several studies that have also looked at what interventions might be protective against an incisional infection um, and things such as applying a stent bandage for recovery, use of an abdominal bandage in the postoperative period, and lavage of the incision are just some of the uh, results that have been shown to be protective. So what were your objectives for this study? The objective of this study was to determine whether horses with increased body mass index, or BMI, and that was the marker we used uh, for obesity in this study, were more likely to have incisional complications following colic surgery. And we hypothesized that horses with a higher BMI would be more likely to develop incisional complications postoperatively. Okay, and what were your inclusion criteria, and how did you undertake the study? So this was a retrospective study utilizing medical records from two university teaching hospitals from 2010 to 2018. 
Horses were included if the horse had undergone colic surgery and was greater than two years of age at the time of that surgery. Records were then excluded if a minimum of 30 postoperative days was not available. And this could have been either due to non-survival or loss to follow-up. Horses that underwent more than one colic surgery within the study period had only data from the first surgery included and were excluded if the second surgery occurred within 30 days of the first. And that was to account for the fact that it's known that horses are more likely to develop an incisional infection um, if they undergo a second surgery in a short period of time. So we utilized body mass index, or BMI, um, as a surrogate measure of obesity. BMI is used extensively in humans, and BMI has been shown to correlate with body condition scores and circulating adipokine levels in horses based on previous studies. So we calculated BMI by dividing the patient weight by the withers height squared, um, as has been previously described in horses also. And then we used a combination of data retrieval from the medical records, along with contacting owners via phone and email to determine if there were any complications with the abdominal incisions after the horses left the hospital. Okay, so how many horses did you recruit um, and what types of operative procedures had they um, had been carried out? So there were 287 horses that met our study criteria. All the horses underwent an open intra-abdominal surgery via a midline incision, as is standard for most colics. The most frequent findings during surgery in terms of a diagnosis um, included a large colon impaction, large colon displacement, or strangulating small intestinal lesion. And in just over half of the surgeries, bowel was opened during the surgery, either for resection or anastomosis, or for an enterotomy to be performed. And what did you find uh, were the outcomes with regards to postoperative incisional infections? Were there any significant associations? So overall, we had 24% of horses in this study population develop incisional complications. And this is comparable to previous studies that put the infection rate anywhere between 15 to 27%. Um, in our initial analysis, we did find that a higher BMI was significantly associated with an increased risk of incisional complications. Nevertheless, when we put this in a multivariable model to control for potential confounding factors, such as age and breed, we found that the statistical significance of the relationship between BMI and incisional infection decreased to a p-value of 0.07. So not as significant. Um, we also looked to see if surgical time might be a confounding factor in that would horses with more fat take longer in surgery. So looking at a model between incisional infections, uh, BMI, and surgical time, we found that the relationship between BMI and incisional infections persisted, and surgical time did not seem to be a confounding factor in that model. And did the type of procedure play a role in the risk of infection, say if uh, the bowel was open during a procedure? So we found no association between the development of incisional complications and whether or not bowel was open during surgery, 
or what the diagnosis was at the time of surgery. Um, this is different from previous work that has been performed, and we hypothesize some of that could be that based on this previous work, the surgeons are very much aware of some of these factors, and so potentially extra precautions are made to try to mitigate them, um, such as you know, performing enterotomies well away from the incision and using additional draping uh, material when performing a resection and anastomosis to try to minimize um, any contamination to the incision. And what role did breed play um, in regards to association with infection? So we found that breed was associated with BMI. So larger breeds tended to have higher BMIs, but we found no relationship between breed and the risk of developing incisional complications. So we don't think that BMI was just acting as a marker of breed and believe that the association we found likely does reflect some of the metabolic impact of obesity on postoperative healing, uh, as opposed to just the size of the horse. So why do you think there was a trend between higher BMI and higher incisional infection risk? Well, we know that fat is metabolically active and that excessive fat is associated with chronic inflammation, dysregulation of the glucocorticoid metabolism, and altered immune responses. So I think it makes sense that horses with a higher BMI, which would suggest that they have a greater amount of body fat compared to a thin horse, would not heal as well from a major surgery. And certainly BMI is not a perfect measure of obesity in horses. Um, and I think that's part of why we may have seen maybe a trend and maybe less statistically significant numbers, um, probably because our BMI is not the perfect representation of that. But I think it also highlights that whether a horse develops an incisional complication or not um, is probably a culmination of several factors, not just any one factor. Um, and so I think this study shows that uh, obesity likely does play a role in that of whether a horse develops an incisional infection and is something that might warrant some further investigation in the future. And what's your take-home message from this study? So I think this study does suggest that obesity may play a role in the development of incisional complications following colic surgery. Um, as I stated before, you know, BMI is not a perfect measure of obesity, but is, it was what we could do for starting this pathway of research um, with a retrospective study. And I think more research is really needed to look at more specific markers of obesity in horses and try to determine how significant this relationship might be um, to kind of better provide our owners with better information and maybe provide veterinarians uh, with a better way to predict maybe which horses might have complications or not postoperatively. Okay, well, we really appreciate you joining us for this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Maria Figazola is an equine surgeon, and this review of surgical osteochondral defect repair was undertaken as part of her PhD studies at Utrecht University. The review is titled... Surgical Osteochondral Defect Repair in the Horse, a Matter of Form or Function. 
Maria, thank you very much for joining us to discuss your recent review paper on surgical osteochondral defect repair in the horse. So it's quite a... It's quite a large um, topic to cover today, and we'll try and do it in an interesting and succinct way. So I'll start by asking you um, what the aim is when um, clinicians are trying to repair or deal with an osteochondral lesion. Right. So um, I think that the very first aim um, when repairing these lesions uh, obviously is um, to try to restore the homeostasis of the joint, um, but uh, also primarily to restore um, function. So um, I think it really doesn't matter with what means or what materials or if endogenous or exogenous um, material, it's more about the functionality of the joint. Um, so to read a smooth surface with uh, a good shear force resistance and compressive resistance um, to the biomechanical loads the joint is, um, uh, needs to sustain. Uh, and the second uh, important goal, obviously, is to um, keep inflammation as low as possible because, as we know, inflammation in the, uh, on its own can also lead to further degeneration of, um, of the cartilage. And the experimental studies we'll go on to discuss, um, there's a lot of comparison between um, the equine and human stifles. I think equines are used a lot as models. Um, why is this? Um, well, uh, strangely enough, there are um, quite some similarities between the um, equine, specifically the equine knee, the stifle, and the human knee, um, as well in um, biomechanics, um, but also and especially in cartilage thickness, because um, as we know, the cartilage thickness, the layers vary um, enormously across species. Um, and um, actually, uh, the equine thickness um, of cartilage in the um, specifically in the stifle um, is almost exactly the same as humans. We're talking about uh, more or less two millimeters of um, thickness. The paper gives a clear um, distinction between repair and regeneration of these osteochondral defects. Could you talk us through that? Yes, there, there needs to be made a distinction since um, we, we have a, a crucial difference. Um, so regeneration uh, refers to healing, uh, in which there is basically regrowth of tissue um, towards the original normal state. So a one-to-one -one substitution of what was there before. Um, whilst uh, with the, the term repair, um, we define a combination of regeneration and replacement, um, which usually goes through uh, laying down connective tissue um, and um, yeah, further remodeling, uh, which can also be referred to banally as scar scarring. Um, so it is actually a different in repair. We usually talk about um, a different tissue, uh, also different nature of tissue um, as compared to regeneration where exactly the same uh, type of tissue can be reproduced. So the paper talks through several different surgical techniques for repair of these osteochondral defects. Um, could you give us um, some kind of description of each of them, please? 
Yes, uh, maybe I would just like to add another sentence to the question before, because mm-hmm. something also important we have to um, remember is that um, in terms of um, regeneration, that has actually been defined since um, very uh, quite some years ago, that the the um, hyaline cartilage, so uh, articular cartilage, cannot actually regenerate. So that's something we really have to uh, keep in mind that until now there hasn't been um, this type of uh, regrowth of tissue and that's what all the um, research has been focusing on in the past year. So um, going on to your um, just made question, um, the different um, types of approaches that have been made uh, towards uh, regeneration um, or Repair. I mean, there was an approach and then they basically saw what happened. <laughs> and um, the most ancient one, obviously, is a microfracture um, in which a connection to the subchondral um, trabecular bone uh, is established in order to facilitate influx of uh, growth factors um, from beneath the subchondral bone plate um, and inside um, repair in this case. Um And then going over to more modern techniques, uh, which basically try to substitute um, the original tissue, such as uh, mosaicoplasty, um, which have been used in humans also, um, taking parts of integer um, cartilage and substituting it in the uh, lesion area with the whole thickness of the layer uh, included. Um, and obviously, we have all the um, mesenchymal cell cells and progenitor cells, so all the autologous um, fields um, where um, autologous blood stem cells or marrow cells are applied uh, alone or in combination with certain scaffolds. Um, and then the very new modern field um, of um, autologous grafts, bioprinting and grafts, um, which um, uh, basically um, reproduce the, the natural layers of cartilage and go down to subchondral bone. So there we have a, a new field which uh, tries to anchor new um, scaffolds and new uh, cartilage uh, replacements or temporary uh, scaffolds, which um, should be then substituted by uh, normal cartilage, which are anchored in the subchondral bone. Um, that is, I guess, one of the newest frontiers which is being explored at the moment. And there was a few um, paragraphs on different scaffolds and graphs, so the biphasic graphs and your zonal constructs. Um, could you describe these for us? Yes, so the advantage of, uh, in general, of um, allografts or even more bioprinted graphs is um, that they are more reproducible in a um, um, yes in a, in a rep- they are more reproducible in the same way uh, and they have uh, less um, immune reactions usually since they are uh, basically um, f- cell free products 
um, which uh, should provide, um, as their name says, a scaffold for endogenous repair. So it should work uh, like a, um, a grid on which then um, through also chemiotactic factors or um, some have added some interleukins or other factors, they um, stimulate the local environment to be invaded by chondrocytes and uh, newly produced um, cartilage. So that's a bit the um, the sense of a of a graft in general, um, and as I said, they can be also autologous, so they can be basically um, from the same uh, individual individual um, extracted from a different, uh, less biomechanically loaded area and implanted into a um, into the lesioned um, area. Um, then uh, we have the um, biphasic and um, zonal constructs, which uh, which I um, said before. They basically um, uh, add um, the, uh, the layered nature of uh, articular cartilage into the construct. As we know, we have four layers of cartilage. Then we have the calcified cartilage and subchondral bone. And um, one of the major problems of all these uh, scaffolds and um, bioprinted uh, also hydrogels, uh, which I was talking before, which I summarized in the study, is uh, often that they don't really um, have the biomechanical uh, characteristic to resist uh, within the joint to specific shear forces and compressive forces. Um, it's a bit like uh, sometimes you could think repairing a pothole with marmalade it's just gonna squish out as uh, soon as there's going to be some load or some um, some force application. So with the biphasic or um, zonal construct, this uh, problem uh, has been tried to uh, they tried to solve this problem by, um, as I said, anchoring these um, scaffolds to the subchondral bone. Um, obviously by making initially a deeper defect than the original defect itself, but then by uh, press fitting these uh, implants, uh, they um, do actually result to have a much better hold to, um, to, to the bottom layers. Um, so in terms of stability of the construct, uh, that definitely has been also already an improvement. Um, unfortunately, as all the other um, um, techniques we had just mentioned before, um, it's important to mention that it's always fiber cartilage resulting in all these repair um, in all these repair methods. Okay, so you, you talked us through a little bit about um, the different layers of cartilage, and um, there's a lot of intrinsic factors. Um, to do with the makeup of cartilage and the underlying subchondral bone, etc. So what are the most important factors you're looking for with um, repair or regenerative tissue? Um, are functional components more, more important than uh, biochemical components or vice versa? Um, yes, this is actually something um, important to mention because uh, all these studies that have been uh, reviewed in the paper focus a lot on um, biochemical analysis. So basically, um, as we know, collagen type 2 is the um, most present um, uh, representative of collagen types in the hyaline cartilage in combination with a GAC, so glycosaminoglycans. Um, and all these studies have focused on finding these two components in their repair tissue. And the more they found them or the, the more they were present, uh, the more the statement was um, we reproduced hyaline-like or um, hyaline, even hyaline um, cartilage. Um, but 
in unfortunately in many studies what has been left out is um the biomechanical testing of these um resulting um repair tissues uh which um it, it it sounds a bit banal but actually it's actually the most important outcome as we said at the beginning of the interview the functional outcome is the more most important part so whether there is uh, a lot of uh, collagen type 2 so whether through um biochemical analysis there um seems to be similarity in the repair tissue with native cartilage uh, it does not at all mean that there is a comparable biomechanical stiffness um, that uh, is similar between the two types of cartilage. So, and and those studies that looked into the biomechanical um, characteristics all find out, without exception, that the repair tissue was um, much, much ten times lower in uh, resistance uh, compared to native cartilage. So that's a. It's actually an important point, um, the, the function versus the uh, biochemical or even only the macroscopic appearance of, of repair tissue. And I, I even provo provocatively um, stated that we don't even know if the natural occurring um, fiber cartilage from the body, uh, which repairs a defect when we, for example, micropick it, um, might be... Um, so much worse, biomechanically speaking, than um, I will call it a fancy repair tissue full of um, uh, collagen type 2 and gags, but um, yeah, functionally and biomechanically much inferior maybe. So after reviewing all these um, surgical approaches, what do you think is the most favorable technique for either the trochlear ridge or, or the condyles? Right, so um, we could uh, sum up that um, based on the on the current state of no, uh, knowledge um, for the trochlea for the lateral trochlea of the femur, the um, Macy so matrix assistant uh, assisted implantation of chondrocytes um, uh, seem to bring the the best results. So for the trochlear ridges, this uh, Macy worked. Um, uh, reasonably well uh, in terms of um, specific scores, uh, histologic scores, and so on. Um, whilst for the um, medial condyle of the horse, which is a, obviously an area that interests us a lot since we have our uh, OCD um, uh, cysts in those uh, places, the mosaicoplasty technique showed um, best results. Um, just keeping in mind that best results mean that 50% of the implants um, survived and showed um, good characteristics of um, hyaline cartilage in this case, really, because uh, they were actually um, taken and transplanted. Um, so these two methods, um, yes, showed uh, to be the best um, for repair in those areas. And has this review changed what surgical approaches you use yourself? Well, um, to be honest, the, the, all these um, researchers, the only, the only um, approach that convinced me most um, for the only reason that it is actually um, reproducing, able to reproduce proper articular cartilage in the place where it is needed um, would be the mosaicoplasty technique. Um, and it would be something I might consider for um, bigger, difficult lesions um, where I really uh, can't afford to lose um, 
material in that area um, without substituting it, which is what we would do with micropicking. We would basically debride and stimulate, but there are certain areas where the lesions are too big and uh, can't be really um, just left like that. So that actually uh, is something I uh, I am looking into. Um, it, it is, though, a quite... Um, um, laborious, expensive, well, expensive once you know the technique, once you have the material, it's not even that expensive because it's a quite manual technique. Uh, but it is, uh, it is obviously uh, more, more cumbersome. Um, uh, so in, in, in light of the, um, yes, economic and uh, more complicated procedure, um, apart from the mosaicoplasty, I would definitely still um, stick for the micro to the micro picking, especially since micro picking showed um, in horses as well as in humans um, a decent short term results. The long term results have been really not as good, which is why micro picking in the first place has has started to be questions as uh, questioned as a, as a gold standard. Um, but for the short term, and since we're often talking about horses, race horses, for example, that have a quite a short term career, and um, yes, in view of the of the um, uh, economic aspect also of this technique and the simple nature of it, I would uh, definitely go for that for other um, less big and uh, um, grave uh, damages. Well, thank you, Maria, for joining us and um, talking us through your review today. Very happy to have participated. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again for joining us for this edition of the EVJ podcast. And please tune in again in two months for the next. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Journal podcast. More on the subjects discussed can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ. 